As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Beyond the Crucible. I'm Warwick Fairfax, the founder of Crucible Leadership. Even when life can feel overwhelming and there's no hope, just take that, you know, one small step. It could be apply for that next position, even when you think it's hopeless. Have that one more networking call. In J.K. Rowling's case, send out one more manuscript to one more publisher. You know, whatever the positive step is, no matter how small, each day try to take one small step. It could be journaling about the kind of position you would like to get, but it's the importance of taking one small step at a time each day, each week. That is probably the foundation of getting out of a bottomless pit. Even when that small step can seem like, well, even if it happens, so what? Raise your hand if you've ever felt like you're in that position, like the crucible you're in has no bottom, it has no end, that no matter what you try to do next, this has been going on so long that to try to do anything more to overcome it, to move beyond it, so what? Hi, I'm Gary Schneeberger, the co-host of the show and the communications director for Crucible Leadership. And on today's episode, Warwick answers the so what question. Beyond that, he offers a roadmap for how all of us can proceed through a bottomless crucible, as he calls it, through what we've dubbed crucible fatigue. How do you get from point A to point B when point A and a half seems like it's gone on forever? You'll find that out on today's episode. And as Warwick says, it all begins with one step. Sometimes we go through this crucible and it feels like it's a bottomless pit. It feels like the pit has no end. There is no light at the end of the tunnel. You know, you can't even see a tunnel. You just see this whole sense of darkness. And at the moment... Everybody really has had a tough 2020, or pretty much everybody. We've had the whole pandemic, which seemed to go on forever. Yes, we've heard recently that maybe there's a vaccine, but that could take quite a while to get out and be widespread. The economy is uncertain. We've had a very uh, kind of uh, tough election that's divided many people. Some are happy, some are not happy. 
our whole world feels in a lot of turmoil, a lot of division along a lot of lines, including uh, racism and issues of systemic racism. I mean, it's been a very tough year for a lot, if not most people. So in a sense, you could say many of us are going through a collective crucible, but crucibles can also be very personal. Whether it's 2020 or not, you might have got fired from your job or let go, passed over for a promotion. Maybe you have a loved one that's died recently or a health challenge in the family. So whether it be because of large outside causes or something uh, very personal, there are some days, some months, some years even, in which we feel like we don't have hope. It just seems like there is no way out of the bottom. We just feel like this crucible is like a black hole that's going to go on forever. And as we all know, once you get into a black hole, any right. folks who are physics majors know that once <laughs> you get into a black hole, not even light can escape. So right. that, we kind of feel like we're in this black hole of a crucible and, and yeah, there is no end. If we've heard it once in 2020, we've heard it dozens, if not more than that times, people saying, I'm just tired of this. I'm tired of fill in the blank of the pandemic and the concern about health and the pandemic and the concern about the health of the economy and the restrictions and the, you know, I was just, you know, talking to uh, my wife and I were talking to my stepson last night and he was saying, you know, he had plans this summer to see his friends and do things and he hasn't been able to do that. And, you know, you don't realize that sometimes as you're dealing with your own fatigue, that everybody around you probably has a little bit of that fatigue too. And on any given day and any given year, that can be real. Those crucibles, to use your excellent phrase, can feel bottomless. But right now, it seems like a great percentage of us, a great concentration of us are feeling that. And in fact, just this morning, I was poking around on LinkedIn, and there's a story, a new story on LinkedIn about firms grappling with what they're calling pandemic burnout. So we're calling this crucible fatigue. They're referring at LinkedIn to pandemic burnout. And I'm not going to read the whole story, but here's some interesting, just as we go through this episode, I know the things that you're going to talk about, Warwick, and they touch on some of these very things. As the pandemic stretches on through the fall, bosses say many of their remote employees are reporting depression and uncertainty over what's next. And many firms are taking actions to head off a surge of employee distress. That sounds like fatigue, doesn't it? Uh, but just a couple of the tips that they offer in this story on LinkedIn. One, and we'll talk about it in more detail in some different words, but as we move through this episode, encouraging staff to take time off or take self-care days. Okay, that's one of the things that LinkedIn's talking about in terms of pandemic burnout. We'll talk about it in this episode about crucible fatigue. Also, fostering dialogue to share genuine emotions. Right. That's one of the tips that you have that we'll unpack a little bit later on. And then offering training or supervising to help people with expressing empathy to others. Again, that's one of the things we'll talk about it. You'll talk about it in a bit of a different way, but you will talk about it before our time is up today. So I thought that was very interesting as we're, you know, we sort of picked this idea out. We're not the only ones who are doing it because here's LinkedIn talking about it just this morning. Yeah, it's so true. Yeah, for so many of us, uh, we just locked at home and uh, I have three adult kids in their 20s and um, one is working remotely and, you know, seems to be okay. Another, my daughter came back from Australia where she was for a couple of years and she's doing a grad course and um, 
you know, she should be in Chicago where the grad course is, but it's all remote and she's an outgoing person. So it was just tough to be locked at home. And younger son had to do graduation from college. I mean, I guess remotely, I mean, you know, wasn't able to go to it live. So it's, our lives are just so different. People are getting isolated, I'm sure. Depression and other issues are more prevalent now since people are locked at home. So it's, life is tough enough, but you've got this overlay. So it's a tough time for many people. You know, it's, uh, I always like to pull quotes, especially on these episodes when it's just the two of us. And you know, the listeners don't know that I'm a huge Green Bay Packers fan. But here's something that Vince Lombardi, the legendary coach of the Green Bay Packers, said about fatigue which is, I think, a good jumping-off point to begin some more detailed discussion of this subject of fatigue over crucibles. Vince Lombardi said, fatigue makes cowards of us all, right? We talked about this idea, Warwick, that I don't feel I have enough energy to get on. I just want to stay in bed and pull the covers over my head. And, and, you know, Vince was a little plain-spoken, but the idea there really is it can make us feel like we just want to give up. It can make us feel like we don't have what it takes to press through. Yeah, I mean, we're kind of right. I mean, we often use this image in crucible leadership. We can, you know, feel like we're under the, you know, hiding under the covers and just not want to get up. You just this sense of I'm done. I've had it. I'm checking out of life, you know, just going to go through the next 20, 30, 40 years. And that's it. You you know, I think all of us can have times in which we feel like that's it. Or, you know, when you're in the bottom of a crucible, it goes on forever it is tough to get out of that thinking back to the black hole image. It's tough to get out of that thinking of I'm done, I'm worn out, I'm tired, I've had it. That's not an easy cycle to break when you're at the bottom of the crucible. And listeners who've spent any time at all with us know that you, Warwick, are a great student of history, that you draw many of your leadership insights, uh, practical tips from some of the greatest leaders in history. And History tells us that what we're talking about today, there are examples, even in, in recent history, there are examples of folks who have gone through some really hard, bottomless feeling crucibles, crucible fatigue. And yet, as we like to say, on beyond the crucible, your crucibles aren't the end of your story. They can be the beginning. In, in the cases that, we've, that you've written about in the past, there are great examples of folks who indeed have done that. Who comes to mind as you uh, think that over? Yeah, it is funny. We do talk a lot about folks in history, be it Washington, Lincoln, Churchill, uh, Roosevelt. But one that came to mind as we were thinking about this is somebody I wrote about a little while ago, maybe a year ago, uh, J.K. Rowling, whose first name is Joanne, but publisher decided to go with J.K. since... She wrote the best-selling books, Harry Potter, that was targeted at kind of, you know, teenage boys and what have you, and they thought, you know, J.K. would be better for that audience. Uh, I don't think boys would really have cared, but, you know, publishers, uh, go figure. It's the marketing and PR guys. It's the PR guys. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So, you know, everybody's heard of J.K. Rowling, and they've heard of her incredible success. You know, she sold more than 450 million copies of a seven-book series, Her eight films that she's done on Harry Potter, she's done other ones, but just on Harry Potter, they grossed over $7 billion worldwide with a B. I mean, she's had enormous success. 
So when you think of people who are that successful, it's hard to think that maybe they went through crucibles. Maybe they went through a time in which there seemed to be no hope. And so, you know, we forget about that. But J.K. Rowling, Joanne Rowling, she had that experience. You know, she, um, around 1992, was about two years after she came up with the whole idea of Harry Potter. Right. And it was an unbelievably tough year. It was sort of like her 2020, if you will maybe multiplied by five or something. Her mother had just died after battling multiple sclerosis since Joanne was a teenager. She'd had a difficult divorce from her first husband, and she had a young daughter to support. So here she was in Edinburgh, Scotland, living in poverty, on welfare. She had a a young daughter to support. By her own admission, she was diagnosed with depression, on the verge of suicide, again, this is her perspective, life couldn't have been more difficult. I mean, what hope is there for a single mother in Edinburgh, you know, in that situation? And, you know, apparently she had a a difficult relationship with her dad. So, you know, a lot of these support mechanisms, they kind of weren't there, at least not from family. And those are a lot of crucibles that can stack up pretty quickly. Yeah, I mean, she said that it was she was as poor as it's possible to be in modern Britain. She felt that she'd failed on an epic scale. But it's interesting, she says that rock bottom became the foundation on which she rebuilt her life. Mm. And what's interesting is, you know, and, and she's said a number of things since about this, about just kind of her attitude. She said failure was, was stripping away of the non-essential, She said she was set free because her greatest fear had been realized and she is still alive and she had a daughter that she adored. Uh, Failure taught her things about herself that she couldn't have learned any other way. So she said that later, but at the time, picture J.K. Rowling. So here she is, Joanne Rowling. She's in Edinburgh. She tended to ride in the sort of cafes in the town. And so what she would do is she'd have a stroller with her young daughter in it and as a lot of young mothers and young parents will know, she'd be you know, wheeling around the stroller until eventually a daughter would fall asleep, which can take a while. So you know, a daughter would fall asleep, she'd head into the cafe, and then start writing. Not in a typewriter, longhand, on a pad of paper, and she's probably thinking, okay, how many pages can I get done before my daughter wakes up? Right. Two, three, a chapter? Okay, off we go, let's have another few walks around the block, and then let's go to another cafe, or maybe the same one. So that's what she did time after time until that book was finished. Then she went to a number of publishers. She went to 12 publishers. They all said no. Right. The 13th said yes. (laughs) And let's back up so listeners catch this moment. The book she's talking about that she gave to 12 publishers, a dozen publishers, wasn't, you know, some book you've never heard of. (laughs) This was like Harry Potter. This was... When people talk about the most successful books of all time, you know, there's the Bible. And then I think, you know, some of the Harry Potter books (laughs) fall in under that in terms of sales. So, I mean, this was something that was good that she poured herself into. And yet it was rejected 12 times. Right. Because nobody had ever heard of Joanne Rowling, you know, at the time. So who was she? And so most people will turn down books, even seems uh, good ones. But, you know, you could tell yourself, well, That's Joanne Rowling, but think, you know, she's a single mother, bad divorce, you know, mother died, bad relationship with her dad, and here she is in Edinburgh on welfare. Right. I mean, there's not a lot lot of hope to be gained there. 
But somehow she was able to press on. Somehow she didn't give up hope and just believed in in the dream. She just believed in this book and she wouldn't give up. And we'll talk later about how that relates to some of the tips, but it's pretty of an amazing story. It is. And let's walk listeners through exactly what that's like. If you're feeling right now, listener, like you're in a bottomless crucible, right? You're having crucible fatigue, be it the pandemic, the economy, personal things. Let's just unpack what J.K. Rowling went through. Sends the manuscript off once, rejected. Twice, rejected. Three times, rejected. Four times, rejected. Five times, rejected. Six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Twelve times it was rejected. She could have given up at any one of those times. How many times does it take us, and this is a rhetorical question for all of us, how many times does it take us to give up on a dream, on something, you know, three times, four times? What if J.K. Rowling at the third time, the seventh time, the tenth time had given up? The world would have been deprived of what culturally is considered, you know, one of the great children's novel series and then from that movie series of all time. She pushed through. And because she pushed through, I would say, in the language of crucible leadership, she's living a life of significance. Absolutely. Very true. Uh, She's living an incredible life and has a whole kind of volunteer organization to support people. I think others that have gone through some of the experiences that she's had. So, yeah, she's had an incredible impact on the world. No question. It was interesting, Warwick, when you mentioned to me or, you know, on the show here, when you mentioned the amount of money the books have sold, because you used you actually used the phrase billion with a B. (laughs) And one of the skills of a good co-host is knowing how to segue and pick moments to segue. So where the other time I've said a few times billion with a B is your own personal story, your own personal crucible, Warwick of your takeover of the family media company in the late 80s, the failure of that company slips from family control after 150 years, and at a loss of uh, $2.25 billion. Big crucible. You've talked about that many times on the show, but one of the things that you haven't really talked about that I'd like you to you know, share with listeners a little bit is it took a while because it was the late 80s, early 90s when that fell through and it took some time. It took a few years for you to fight through the fatigue of what that crucible caused in your life. Is that true? It is, yeah. I mean, as you mentioned, uh, I think most listeners would know, but growing up in this large family and media business in Australia, newspapers, TV stations, radio, magazines, you know, launched this $2.25 billion takeover to bring it back to the ideals of the founder, see the company as being well run. That kind of all... uh, fell through almost from the beginning. We had an unsustainable level of debt. I felt like I'd been put on this earth to, you know, spend my whole life in this media company and, you know, I can do such a lot of good in the community. I thought this was a vision. Maybe it wasn't my vision, but I felt like it was a good vision nonetheless. And then after 150 years, certainly in part due to me, the company goes or passes from family control you know, goes bankrupt and passes on to other people in late 1990. So here we are in the 1990s, and, you know, I was not clinically depressed, but I was in a bad way. It's like, mm. well, what is my purpose now? What do I do? Right. I wasn't poverty-stricken like Joanne Rowling. You know, didn't have the same level of wealth, but certainly you know, enough to, to be okay. 
but just emotionally, spiritually, I felt like I'd let my family down, God down in a sense, and the company was founded by a person of faith, and faith's important to me. You know, I felt like I let my parents down. It was just a tough, tough thing. And so, you know, I've always been analytical. So I thought maybe it would be, uh, you know, I could get a job doing strategic analysis, marketing analysis, anything that's analytical. And I'd send out resumes to different places in first half of the 1990s. And, you know, who wants to employ an out-of-work media mogul? Right. I mean, nobody. I could say, oh, I'm humble. And they'll wait. oh, sure. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. And so I was like unemployable. I mean, it just, it was just, you know, it's hard to have a hope, you know, when you just think of all these rejections, which I could understand. So eventually, you know, sometimes desperation makes you take steps that you probably wouldn't otherwise. In Maryland, where we live, there was a, a temp agency that looks for, you know, temporary employment for accountants and financial analysts. Well, I'm not an accountant, but I have done financial analysis. After I went to Oxford and before I went to Harvard Business School, I worked on a bank on Wall Street and so did, you know, financial analysis. And yeah, as an aside, I have a Harvard MBA, but that certainly didn't help me get a job at that point. Again, former media mogul. Right. It was just, didn't do anything for me. I mean, not their fault, but the situation. So I went to this temp agency and said, well, I could do financial analysis. So I said, well, we have this like little program that'll test your proficiency at Microsoft Excel. Well, I'd done that, used that a lot in business school and in the bank. So I guess at the time, you were pretty good talking about 1996. (laughs) That's pretty good. I said, well, you got a really good score on Excel. Okay, great. (laughs) So they found me a job at a uh, a sports company that had its U.S. headquarters in Maryland and had needed some help with budgeting. So I did that over a few months, and it must have done a good enough job. They said, well, you're an employer. I said, you did a great job helping out with budgeting analysis and all. So then they said, well, there's a temporary to permanent position at a local company in Annapolis where I live that's a uh, you know, large aviation services company. So we started off there doing financial analysis, and after a few months, they offered me a full-time job. Now, this is like 1996. And at the time, what they were offering me was a fair you know, wage for the work that was being done. But I felt like I was probably the lowest paid Harvard Business School graduate in right. history at the time. Right. But yet, I was overjoyed. I had a job. It was something that I could do. It certainly wasn't my dream job at Harvard MBA doing, you know, entry-level financial analysis for an aviation services company, nothing wrong with the industry, but it was a first step. And little bit by little bit, I got more into business analysis, strategic analysis. From there, as some listeners will know, I took a um, an executive coach who does sort of mid-career assessments, gave me an assessment, said, so, well, you have a great profile for executive coaching, got into that, got onto two nonprofit boards, including my church board, as I started doing that, people said, boy, you know, you have a, a great perspective on leadership. I'm thinking, what do you mean? I'm just asking questions. Right. So, oh, do I have actually something to offer? Because at the time, I would have been like, I, have, I couldn't lead my way out of a paper bag. Me? Lead? Look what I did. Come on. I have nothing to offer. But mm. little bit by little bit, and then, you know, the, the idea of the book came through a talk I gave in church. Somehow what I said helped people, and then crucible leadership. But- you know, where I am now is a tremendous place with a book that's going to be published next year, 
this podcast, Beyond the Crucible, active on social media, have a whole website, Crucible Leadership. But you think back to all those years ago when I'm at this temp agency and it's like, oh, you're good at Excel. Maybe we can find something temporary for you. It seems like a baby step, like a micro baby step, like a, right. a hundredth of a baby step. It didn't seem a particularly glorious step, but it was a step, as we'll talk about later, that led to greater things. But I had no idea at the time. And as you know, before you went into that temp agency and had that conversation and found the temporary job, what was it like emotionally? I mean, you know, we've talked about it many times mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. listeners probably have not had the, certainly have not had the same details of their crucibles as you have or as I have. But the emotions are the same. And I assume at some point in the midst of post takeover and going in and, and getting that temporary job, you probably experienced, did you not, crucible fatigue? Yeah, I mean, it was hard to have a whole lot of energy to kind of do anything super productive. Fortunately, I have a, I had young kids at the time, and my wife is very loving and supportive, which was huge. I'm so blessed. But yeah, I mean, it was just, you try and trot out resumes. This was just before the dawn of the internet in the, in the early 90s, so you know, not like you could just Google stuff um, at the time. You would send out resumes and nothing would happen. I mean, how do you get the energy and the get up and go to send out a resume when the chances of success are pretty much zero? Right. Objectively speaking, out of work, media mogul, Harvard MBA, Oxford, it's like, there is no way. I was unemployable. So there was zero reason for even a speck or a grain of hope, objectively. And I knew that. And so you just keep, I mean, fortunately, and this is a blessing, we weren't on the streets. We had, a, you know, not, didn't have billions, but had enough that we would be okay at least for a while. But yeah, I mean, it was hard to get motivation to do a whole lot in term professionally. It was having young kids does distract you in a good way. Yep. But to feel like, oh, let's try out another resume. Well, why? I mean, what's the point? Right. It will fail, which they did. You know, so, yeah, I mean, it's just, it just saps you of energy, of fatigue, you feel bad about yourself, and then, then you start thinking, what an idiot, the takeover, why did I do it, so dumb, so stupid, and so the fatigue, and not clinical depression, but depression can lead to self-recrimination, like, I'm in this spot, certainly in significant part because of my own stupidity, so then the cycle of, I'm, you know, I can't get a job, I'm an idiot, <laughs> I can't get a job. I'm an idiot. You and know, it's, and yeah, you just get, it's, it's worn out. It's hard to pick yourself up every day. It's, it's tough. And the good news for listeners who may find yourselves in the same place right now, your crucible has been going on for longer than you expected it would, certainly longer than you hoped it would. And maybe you're feeling tired. Maybe you're feeling fatigued. Maybe you're feeling what Warwick just described. What's the chance of success of this resume or of this effort to start my business up the way that I want to do it? What's the, what effort is going to pay off for me to continue to pursue my vision? You know, maybe I should just stop, to use the J.K. Rowling example, maybe I should just stop at the 11th submission of the, of the manuscript. But the good news is, as Warwick described for himself, as J.K. Rowling 
is testament to, there are ways to fight that fatigue. There are ways to sort of light the engine to help you move past that fatigue, to dissipate that fatigue and move your life toward a life of significance. And I know, Warwick, uh, you have a blog on this subject and uh, you unpack several helpful tips. It really is, uh, the way I described it as I'm thinking about it, it's a roadmap, if you will, of how to go from I want to lie in bed with the covers over my head to I'm chugging along pretty good toward a life of significance. Let's walk the listeners through that roadmap. Yep, yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the first one is probably the most important. It's take one small step. Even when life can feel overwhelming and there's no hope, just take that, you know, one small step. It could be apply for that next position, even when you think it's hopeless. Have that one more networking call. In J.K. Rowling's case, send out one more manuscript to one more publisher. You know, whatever the positive step is, no matter how small, each day try to take one small step. It could be journaling about the kind of position you would like to get, but it's the importance of taking one small step at a time each day, each week. That is probably the foundation of getting out of a bottomless pit. Even when that small step can seem like, well, even if it happens, so what? Right. Like, okay, so I go to this temp agency and they think I'm good at Excel. Okay, that seems not super exciting, but okay. But that's the first thing is take one small step because those small steps can seem like a flywheel. Yeah. And I'll give you an example of a small step I took. And we haven't even talked about this beforehand, but it just came to mind when I was uh, my second journalism job. And I've, I've mentioned on the show, I think once before that I was a reporter in a newspaper and I was kind of the I thought I was a star reporter. <laughs> I got a lot of you know choice assignments and I began to believe my my hype a little bit too much didn't try as hard as I could have tried. And, and the ultimate result of that was I got laid off. And that was, you know, in the 90s. And it was not the easiest thing to do. Newspapers were still more robust than they are now. But I'm trying to think, what am I going to do? And again, before the internet, how do you find about jobs? How do you do this? And I remember after a couple of weeks of just kind of wanting to lie in bed and go sit by the pool and, uh, you know, not do really much of anything, I decided my one step was going to be this. I was going to dress every morning like I was going to work. And I was going to treat finding a job like having a job. That was my job, was to find a job. So I got up, shaved, got dressed in my you know shirt and tie and coat and sat and worked trying to find a job. And just that one small step changed my perspective because my perspective was a guy who was unshaven for four days lying in his bed feeling sorry for himself to a guy that at least looked like felt like he was someone who was employable someone who had a future and that one small step to your point then led to another small step another small step and I came up out of the uh, bottomless pit so after the small step after step one which is take one small step what comes after that yeah, and that's a profound example, just sort of a, an attitude change of just right. getting dressed and, you know, your work clothes, so to speak. That, you know, the an attitude as well as an action can be so profound. So I think one of the things that happens is, 
you know, there's a link between taking a small step and, and the vision. You may not know what your whole vision is, but as you begin to take some small steps and get some affirmation, you begin to see, well, maybe there's something that I can do. And the vision begins to to grow. Um, you know, in my case, when I got into financial analysis, I'm actually pretty good analytically. This is something that I can do. Huh. So I'm getting some positive reinforcement, which encourages me. I get into executive coaching, and I was told I had a leadership voice just by the questions I asked. Mm. Gosh, you know, for me, that's made so many bad mistakes, leadership mistakes. Well, maybe there's something I can do. And, you know, I didn't think at the time, and this is sort of the important point, whether it was when I started coaching or even further back at the temp agency, oh, I'm going to found Crucible Leadership. I'm going to have a book. I'm going to have a podcast. I wasn't thinking that. I was just thinking of something to reclaim at least a, a grain of my self-esteem, something positive I could do. But the vision tends to grow. It's a bit like a flywheel. I think of Walt Disney, who I've talked about earlier. You know, he's just started off wanting to do animated cartoons with a story that was a bit more interesting than the typical ones in the, you know, 20s, early 30s. But from Mickey Mouse, ended up going to Snow White, going to Disneyland, Disney World, and on. The genesis of the dream is all about, surely can't we do animated cartoons a bit better? Right. That was it. You know, it wasn't this big long-term plan. I'm sure J.K. Rowling didn't think, you know, I I really see a billion-plus grossing movie series. This is what's going to happen. She's just like, look, I've got this story in my mind. She'd in her mind, and she'd outlined the whole series of books. But she just wanted to get it published. If she'd got enough income to support her daughter and have some modest living, she probably would have been happy. So there wasn't some big vision, but as you take one small step at a time and you get one small win at a time, Mm -hmm. like, you know, back to your example, by dressing professionally, it made you think, okay, my attitude today is better than it was yesterday. Absolutely. And you could say, well, that's not a win because you didn't get a job, you didn't even get an interview yet. But that attitude change in itself, I'm sure if you viewed at the time, was a win, even be it a small win. Yeah, Does that I, make sense? I couldn't envision the big Lebowski that I was lying. And it's funny, it was before the big Lebowski, actually, that I did this. <laughs> but I couldn't imagine that guy who was sitting in a bathrobe and an unshaven face. I couldn't imagine him having a job. But I could imagine the guy in the mirror sitting in front of his word processor, sending out uh, resumes, clean shaven, tie on. I could imagine that guy getting a job. And you're right. That was a, a switch that flipped in my head that said, okay, I can take the next step. So that was a key small win. And, you know, as we're doing this, and it's easy to forget, we really need to celebrate each small step. Mm. You know, whether it's, of course, it's hard to go out these days to dinner, but, um, you know, back before, whether it's that or even just an attitude of celebration. I remember when that job at the aviation services company went from temp to permanent. It wasn't high paying, but I was overjoyed. Yeah. I'm a Harvard MBA, Oxford graduate. Why would I get excited about a very low-paying, low-level, entry-level job? Because after what I've been through, it was a felt like a big step at the time, but it was a win. I was just over the moon. I was so happy. So don't take those small steps for granted. Celebrate it because that gives you energy 
for the next small step. So right. small step by small step, it builds your vision, celebrate each small step, and that will produce a flywheel of enthusiasm that will make leaping out of bed actually possible right. rather and than I, dragging yourself out. And I love that at this point we're through three points, but truly they're not really tips. They're connected points. They're connected steps along a map. This is a roadmap to getting through crucible fatigue. Take one small step. Don't forget your vision. Dial into your vision as you're taking that step, after that step, before you take the next step, and then celebrate each small step as you go along. That's point three that you just made, or step three that you just made. Absolutely. And I think, you know, it's funny. It's hard to learn or move or grow without moving. You know, movement is the key, which is why we started off with take one small step. But as you're moving, you're going to learn some things about yourself. You're going to learn about what you're good at, what you enjoy doing. You're going to learn, like in my case, I'm analytical. I'm strategic. When I started coaching, I realized I love listening to people and helping other people. I found I had a leadership voice that I had no idea that I had. When that led to me getting on two nonprofit boards, I'm a reserved person by nature, certainly at the time somewhat shy. Because I passionately believed in the missions of those two boards, I found I had a leadership voice. I was able to politely but strongly express my opinion, mm. which is not the kind of person that I thought of myself. I'm not a bomb thrower. I'm, I'd rather listen to other people than offer my opinion. Right. So it's like, wow, really? Who knew I actually was able to express strong opinion constructively? So the point here is, as you go through these small steps, baby steps, as you're learning about more about your vision, as you celebrate it, learn what you don't enjoy, but learn what you do enjoy and learn, okay, about yourself, about who you are. You know, pay attention, reflect as you're moving, because you, there's a lot to learn through each of these steps. You know, why did that work? Why did I enjoy it? Talk about it to your wife or husband, friends, partner. Just learn as you're going through these small steps. And one of the things I love about learn through your crucible coming after celebrate your each small step is that as you learn, you can celebrate the things that you learn. Right. Absolutely. I mean, they're they're up inside themselves. They can be self-contained. You you celebrate the small step. You learn through your crucible. That's a small step. But then you can celebrate the things that you learn. What do you like? What do you not like? What are you good at? Maybe have you fooled yourself into thinking you're better at? What brings your heart alive? You know, those are things that then you can celebrate as you learn more and more about yourself. And each one of these points that Warwick is talking about is fuel that can be added to the engine of your life to help you move beyond that fatigue that you're feeling in what feels like a bottomless crucible. All right, on to step five. Absolutely. And so as you're making these small steps, your vision is growing, you're celebrating, you're celebrating these steps, you're learning about yourself. One of the most important things is to cultivate an attitude of hope. There are optimists and pessimists in this world. And I get it. But a pessimistic attitude to life, you have to ask yourself, how does that serve me? How does it saying, it will never work, I'm going to fail, there is no hope, 
I'm almost reminded of uh, you know Winnie the Pooh. I think Eeyore the donkey just came to mind. I think he's <laughs> right. he was like, oh, it's hopeless. Oh, it's never going to work. Yep. And you know, you don't want to be you know the Eeyore of your life, so to speak. It's not going to serve you. It's your choice. Right. But I would challenge you to think about is this helpful? So have an attitude of hope. So when you know I got that first job in the aviation services company, it's like okay, this is my dream job. I'm analytical. Maybe I can move up into something that better fits my skills. And, you know, or whether it's coaching or a number of things I've done with the book, it's just each step have an attitude of hope, have an attitude that tomorrow will be a better day. It may or may not, but have an attitude of hope because an attitude of hope fuels movement, fuels progress, fuels success. An attitude of negativity and of pessimism, what does that do? It yeah, fuels no growth, no steps. Right. So, you know, whether you feel like it or not, force yourself to think of, uh, have a hopeful attitude. Yeah. And along those lines, Warwick, one of the things that my wife and I have started to do in the midst of the, what can feel like a bottomless crucible, the collective crucible, I believe you called it at the top of the show here. One of the things that we've begun to do in the last month is every morning when we wake up, I went to the dollar store and bought like $1 worth of like five enormous things of slim ribbon. And um, every morning when we get up, we slice a bit of that ribbon off. And we, I've pulled an old vase from underneath in one of the cupboards. And we put it up near where we have family photos in our bay window in the living room. And every morning we get up and together we take a little snip of that ribbon, which is used to wrap gifts. And we say to out loud, thank you, you know, today is a gift. And we drop that ribbon into that vase to remind ourselves that even in the midst of whatever crucibles we're facing, this is going to be relevant after the pandemic has passed. But right now with the pandemic going on and some of the tensions going on in the culture, today, being alive today, having the opportunity to take a small step, having the opportunity to have hope, all of that is a gift. And that for us is a tangible way to tell ourselves when our eyes open first thing in the morning, today is a gift. And if we think about it in that way, that will breed that attitude of hopefulness that you've just talked about. Yeah, there's no question. In fact, yeah, there's sort of a link between some of the last few, the, you know, the, the last tip I have, which really hope leads into gratitude is um, it's easy to have an attitude of just complaining and being, I don't say ungrateful, but just what's the point? But have, being grateful for every small step. It's like, okay, thanks for the interview. Okay, you know, uh, I got that manuscript out to one more publisher. Well, at least maybe they said no, but maybe they gave some constructive feedback. Maybe there was something in there that was going to help you amidst the no. When I was going through those difficult years in the 90s, I was so blessed I had a very supporting wife who not once, not ever got down on me because she understood what I was going. She was always supportive, never negative, ever. I had young kids who, you know, I was daddy. I mean, I was, you know, they didn't know or care about what was happening, you know, in my professional life, which is a bit grim. Right. So being grateful for a loving wife and, you know, wonderful kids, you know, we can always find a way to be to be grateful. I mean, people talk about having an attitude of gratitude. It's just, you know, maybe there are some where you, you might say to themselves, I can't I have nothing to be grateful for, but I'd say the vast majority of people can think of something. Something, to, you know, I'm glad I'm alive. I'm so grateful for this because 
both hope and gratitude, they fuel energy, they fuel momentum, and you want to turn that flywheel with these steps, you need to feed it. How do you feed it? With optimism, hope, and gratitude. And really a final step that sort of really links hope and gratitude or helps fuel them is it really helps to have a cheerleading squad. Mm -hmm. You can surround yourself by negative naysayers, like, you know, Gary Warwick, you know, we always knew you'd fail. I mean, this makes sense you in this position. I, I mean, you know, it was everybody knows you're hopeless. Well, that's a strategy, but I would say <laughs> don't talk to those people. Right. Now, even if they're right to a degree, even the most nastiest negative person might have a grain of truth in there, which is why it typically hurts. You know, right. if there was no truth in there, you wouldn't care. You know, uh, but surround yourself and hopefully it's a spouse partner, kids, people that believe in you, friends, we can all choose our friends, people that believe in you, that, you know, one, you don't need people to tell you what to do. Well, that's good, but, which can mean that was okay, but you're a long way short. You know, they keep moving the goalposts. Right. That's not really a cheerleading squad. That's sort of like, I'm never going to hit the end zone because I keep moving the goalpost. No matter how much I achieve, it's never good enough. That's not the right people. They may be well-meaning, but you want people to celebrate each small win. You say, you know what, Gary Warwick, that's awesome. You got that interview. Well, let's say it's Joanne Rowling. You know, Joanne, you know, maybe she's chatting to some of her friends in the cafe. You know, her daughter's gone to sleep and she's taking a break from writing. And they say, you know, Joanne, it's okay. I know that was the 10th rejection, but we believe in you. This thing will get published. Keep going. For all we know, she had some friends that actually supported her. So you, that is so valuable. Find those people that will support you, that will believe in you, that will help kind of increase this attitude of hope, that will help foster this sense of gratitude in you. So that's huge. It's another important step, hope, gratitude, and a cheerleading squad that help that flywheel. It's all about keeping that flywheel going. Right. That is really the key. One small step at a time keep that flywheel going, and then eventually success will happen, not maybe in the sense that you think about it or plan for it, but that is the way out of the black hole, out of the bottom of the mine shaft. Just keep going one small step at a time in a supportive environment. As you talk about a cheerleading squad, one of the things that comes to mind for me, and we hear it all the time, and we've talked about it on the show before, surround yourself with people who will tell you not what you want to hear but what you need to hear but one of the things that makes those people valuable is they know that sometimes what you need to hear is affirmation sometimes what you need to hear is applause is encouragement yeah there may be times there certainly are times even in the midst of a bottomless crucible in the midst of your crucible fatigue that you need to hear quote-unquote hard truths but the wise people, the good cheerleaders on your squad are going to be ones who will recognize the time to set that aside, the constructive criticism aside, and just applaud you for those things that will help you move the next step that you have to take, right? The first step is important, and the next step, continuing to take the next step after that step, the 12th submission, the 13th submission of the Harry Potter manuscript, that's important. That's so true. If you were kind of writing a job description of uh, your cheerleading squad. I mean, one of the things you hear about people in the business world and giving feedback, they talk about the three-to-one ratio, three affirmations to one constructive criticism. And some people think like they're helping you by just shoveling all over you 
in a massive pile all the things that you need to learn and do. And they all may be true, but you can't handle all of it at one time and it's often not helpful. So, you know, stress the affirmation, maybe ask a question rather than making a point. Is this the direction you want to go? I mean, how do, do you think this, how well does this fit with your gifts and skills? There's a way of, rather than sledgehammering a person, <laughs> gently guiding and nudging. And Correct. ultimately, it's their life. And you could right. be wrong anyway. So, you know, don't think like you know everything. The odd word of wisdom is fine. But as you rightly say, you know, above all, what they need is to move. And they can't move with that affirmation. Affirmation and support is sort of like the oil that greases those clunky wheels, the flywheel that gets it really spinning. So, you know, kind of major on the affirmations, minor on the constructive criticism, you know, in small little doses. Just as we don't need internal Eeyores, we don't need external Eeyores either. That's true. Yeah. What you don't need is a cheerleading squad that will say, you know what? We knew you could never do it. We knew you'd always fail. Yeah. I mean, that's sort of like surrounding yourself with people with that are tying ropes all over you in chains. Right. You don't need to be chained down. So yes, those people should not qualify. They should not be hired for your cheerleading squad. Absolutely. <laughs> One of the things that we say at the end of every, uh, that I say at the end of every episode, Warwick, is it's time to land the plane. So we're going to land the plane here in a bit. What, as the captain of the plane, what's some parting thoughts you'd like to leave listeners with about this idea of fighting their way through what feel like bottomless crucibles, fatigue from crucible experiences? No matter how bad it feels, no matter how hopeless, how dark, how much of a black hole or deep mine shaft, the most important thing to ask yourself is this. What one small step can I take today? What one small step, no matter how small it is, can I take today? It all begins with a small step. All of the other tips, the cheerleading, the hope, gratitude, vision, learning, you know, from your crucible experiences, learning about yourself, it all begins with what one small step. That it's an attitude of the will. Tell yourself, I am going to take a small step today. I am going to do that. That it all begins with one small step. Well, I have been in the communications business long enough and I've used enough plane metaphors on this podcast to know the planes landed and that's the last word that we should share for today from the mouth of both the founder of Crucible Leadership and the one who's lived through it. I usually uh, often close the episode by running through some takeaways and I'm just going to read through this list of takeaways from the blog that Warwick has written on this subject of how to fight through fatigue in a crucible context. So usually I give, you know, one, two, three takeaways. Here we're going to give seven takeaways. Step one is take one small step. Step two is don't forget the vision. Step three, celebrate each small step. Step four, learn through your crucible. As you're going through your crucible, learn the lessons of your crucible. Really important. Five, cultivate an attitude of hope. Six, have a cheerleading squad. Seven, cultivate an attitude of gratitude. Those seven steps taken 
roughly in that order, but you may find as you're walking through it, there's a different order that works for you. But one of the things to remember as you're taking these steps, these aren't disconnected tips in the sense of try this here, try this here, try this here, maybe do this, skip that one. What works laid out for us here is really a roadmap where each time your engine gets a little more fuel, the flywheel gets a little more energy and it pushes you through the fatigue that you're feeling about your crucibles. And the beautiful part of that is once you're past that fatigue, once that dissipates like black clouds being lifted, once you're through that, that's when you really begin to walk on that road to what we call a life of significance. On that subject, listener, one way that you can take a first step, the first step that you can take if you're unsure of what that first step might be is go to crucibleleadership.com and there we have a life of significance assessment. You can answer very few questions, a few questions, and you will be given, tailored just for you, um, some results that will tell you as we've talked about this journey on the road to a life of significance, will show you where you are on that journey. It will also give you some insight into your personality type as you're going through this. Where are you at personally? Are you an imagineer? Are you a world changer? What's the qualities of your personality where you're at on the journey? So you'll find out where you're at, you'll find out who you are as you're at that point in the journey. And then most importantly, you will be given uh, some tips you will be given some takeaway, tangible action steps you can take to continue, to continue the language we've been discussing here, to continue powering yourself through the flywheel down the road to the life that you want to live, the life that you want to live that's on purpose and dedicated to helping others. So until the next time that we're together, thank you so much for spending this time with us. Thank you for trusting us with your crucibles, for turning to us and to Warwick's insight and experience and aptitude to help you along the way of what the next step will be. And remember, as you take that first step, which then will lead to the second step, when then will lead to the third step. And if you're like J.K. Rowling, it could lead to a 13th step. That's good. <laughs> remember, as you go through that, that the crucible that you're in right now, even though it may feel bottomless, even though it may feel like you're, you're fatigued by it, Remember that that crucible, no matter how long it's been going on and how tiring it's been, is not the end of your story. That crucible can be the beginning of your story, and it can be a great beginning of your story because once you learn the lessons, as you continue down that road, that road that you're on leads to something that you can't put a dollar figure on that will bring you the most fulfillment that you can find, and that is your destination will be a life of significance. At Granger, we're for the ones who specialize in saving the day and for the ones who've mastered the art of keeping business moving. We offer industrial-grade supplies for every industry with same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders, all backed by real people ready to help so you can get the right answers and products right when you need them. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.